Welcome back to the 13 Realms podcast. Today we have a living legend in the studio in T. Dan Hofstede. He has touched just about every classic animated film out there. You wouldn't believe the stuff he's worked on. We talk a little bit about his career and how he got in to creating such incredible worlds and characters. But first, we're going to dive right back into the legend of the Kingdom of Dwarves and learn more about the miners in the Lost Mine. Hand-forged pickaxes glimmered in the cold and dim-filtered light of Nightingale Mine. The heavy-handed dwarves had been swinging for days without a break, and fatigue was starting to set in. The head of the digging faction, Orgin, shouted out above the clacking of steel, Rest your hands! A few rubies had been found weeks ago, and had increased the morale of the digging faction to push harder. These rubies held incredible powers when combined with the dwarven weapons, and would be needed in the impending war. As the exhausted dwarves sat back on their haunches, a small trickle of water flowed down the rock face and into a pool on the ground at their feet. Using their hardened hands as vessels, they drank their fill and caught their breath, Iridescent and porcelain-like mushrooms covering the walls and ceiling, made for an easy meal. The mustiness of the mine, mingled with the humid sweat of labor, was thick in the air and made breathing a chore. Orgen looked around at his men, chests swelling and deflating in unison, and was thankful for their efforts. The amount of rock cleared over the past few days was staggering. He could still hear the noble king's words ringing loudly in his ears. Make haste and find the rubies, Orgen. The time is near, and our enemies are marching. A deep and weary solitary voice echoed through the mine. It bounced from one slippery rock face to another, before resting on the ears of its peers. Another voice joined, and another until the cavern was filled with the bellows of the dwarves, chanting the ancient and sacred tune. Odin stood to his aching feet and peered through the dimly lit space. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. As Odin moved closer to the glimmer of light, he moved ever so carefully, as if one wrong step would cause it to disappear. He slowly lowered himself onto his hands and knees, and began to crawl closer and closer to the twinkling light. His oversized woven hands were so calloused that the sharp rocks were no cause for concern. However, his knees dragging and banging against the hard surface caused him to wince. As he neared the crevice where the red reflection bounced, he quickly scrambled backwards and caught himself. A huge wave of adrenaline coursed through his body. A cold sweat formed on his brow, and his extremities began to tingle. He had almost gone headfirst into what appeared to be a bottomless pit in the floor of the cave. From what he could make out in the dark, it was big. 
he couldn't make out the exact dimensions in the dark, but it was too large to step over. As he stood to his feet, he grumbled to himself, Of course, so close and yet so far. Should I take a leap of faith and jump into the darkness? He thought to himself. He couldn't see how far it stretched. Maybe he could try to tiptoe around the edge with his back against the rock face. He felt his way to the side of the cave and could tell there was a narrow edge he might be able to use. Perhaps a few of his brethren could form a bridge with their bodies and he could simply walk across. They are the bravest of dwarves, and they'd do so if I asked. He scratched his itchy beard with the tenacity of someone making an impossible decision. As he glanced back at the little red light teasing him from a distance, he sighed and made his decision. Orgen realized the safest way across the chasm was by using the help of his fellow kinsmen. He turned his head back towards them and whistled into the dark. I'll be needing Cleven, Marvit, Thalys, Sadiz, Rohadin, Galvin, Sargin, Vadilis, um, Golin, and Zathras. He heard some quiet chatter amongst the dwarves as they whispered back and forth. He could make out the squeaking of the wet rocks beneath their feet as they made their way through the blind darkness towards him. He heard one curse aloud, most likely because of the same rock he had banged his own knee on. He chuckled lightly to himself and smiled. As the tin dwarves lined up beside him, he held them back from the edge with an outstretched arm as he motioned towards the deep, dark hole with his other. He was just beginning to explain his plan to the dwarves when one of them caught a glimpse of the red, sparkling gem just across the other side of the ravine. It's beautiful, he exclaimed. His intoxication with the shimmering stone caused him to take a step forward, and he plunged headlong into the abyss. It was silent. The dwarf, Thalys, who had fallen, did not scream, and neither did any of the others who watched in horror. Orgen grimaced and turned to Vatilis. A rough way to go. I ain't going that way myself. Vatilis choked on his own words as he replied, For king and kingdom, I do what must be done. Vatilis and his group of nine dwarves began to fashion themselves together, using old pieces of cloth torn from the articles of clothing they had on. Before Orgen had a chance to realize what they were doing, they had formed a vertical ladder almost thirty feet tall. This leaning tower of dwarves began to move towards the chasm and began to fall towards it. Boom! The mass of dwarves managed to maintain their formation, and their bodies successfully spanned the length of the bottomless pit. Orgen skirted across quickly, never taking his eye off the jewel, and gathered up so quickly in his possession. He glanced down a corridor to his right and saw an entire cavern filled to the brim with rubies. So many rubies that it would have made the richest queen of the elven world blush. The dwarves quickly gathered the rubies, shoving them into shirt pockets, breeches, under hats, and inside shoes. It was quite a sight to behold. They were overwhelmed with joy, but 
maintained her dignity. After all, they are dwarves, and a dwarf always maintains his composure. Orjin realized they had a choice to make. Orjin knew that rubies were a powerful gemstone for the dwarven folk, but there could be other powerful stones lying deeper in the mountain. He cleared his throat and spoke loudly and clearly. Today forever stays with us in our hearts. We must go further and reach into the bowels of this mountain. We shall find even more powerful stones and bring honor to our great king. Cleven and Marvit tossed handfuls of rubies high into the air in celebration. The dwarves roared with applause as Orjan, the fearless one, pushed forward into the darkness. Their voices echoed down the halls, bouncing off of stalactites and stalagmites, and could be heard for miles. Orjan had no way of knowing that while his miners were in a treasure hunt for jewels, the rest of the kingdom was preparing for war with the orcs of Arachian. There had been rising tension between the creatures, and this mining endeavor had angered the orcs. General Lee Oruk had taken the trespass as an offensive action, and his hatred for the dwarves grew untamed. The king of dwarves had hoped that Orjin would have returned unnoticed, for the weapons that were needed in the battle relied on the magical gemstones. The dwarven army fought hard, and many creatures were lost on both sides. General Lee Oruk was impressed by the tenacity of the dwarves, and an agreement between them took place in the days to follow. Ojin managed to retrieve 2,000 gemstones over his journey. Rubies, emeralds, diamonds, amethyst, lapis lazuli, fluorite, and obsidian were among the most notable. Dwarves who had proven themselves in the great battle were given a stone to append to their garments as a badge of honor. This tale is a cornerstone of dwarven lore, and one that fathers and mothers tell their sons and daughters. Long live the Kingdom of Dwarves! We are back in the studio with 13 Realms, and today we have a living legend in animation on with us. T-Dan, if you could introduce yourself, tell us your name and what you've been up to. Oh, good morning. This is T-Dan Hofstead. I'm an animation supervisor. I consider myself an animator with a pencil. Sometimes the pencil is a computer. I'm working as an animation supervisor now on uh, Animaniacs for Warner Brothers. I'm in my eighth year at Warner's, and I've been in animation for close to 40 years. So we got to talk a little bit about the resume because some of these titles, wow. I mean, really, really nostalgic for me. An American Tale, one of my favorite cartoons of all time. In fact, I just remembered that that was one of my favorite cartoons. I'm definitely going to sit down with my girls to watch it. But you've also been in titles like Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Rockadoodle, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Tarzan, Milan. I mean, the, the, the titles just go on and on and on. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this world of animation. Well, I grew up in the shadow of Disneyland, let's say. My dad was a caricature artist and a a portrait artist, 
and he also cut silhouettes, but mainly a caricature artist. And he worked at Disneyland in the 60s when I was growing up. And so, you know, we got to go a lot. I recall as early as like third grade, maybe second, third grade, they used to have these little flip books on Main Street. They're just little tiny squares and they might have like Donald Duck throwing a tantrum or Goofy trying to ski or, or some kind of thing. It was just a little, a little flip book you could buy. And I, I would just look at those drawings and go, whoa, you know, how do they do that? And I would try, you know, in, in grade school to do little flip books in the corners of books. And of course, get in trouble, to, to, depending on <laughs> it, it was. Right. So, you know, making a little, a little stick figure run and jump or whatever. So as, as early as, as that, I remember, oh, this looks fun. I want to do it. And plus, back then, they had the Walt Disney TV show every Sunday night. And occasionally they would, they would have some kind of highlight where they would go around the studio and show some of the animators flipping the drawings. And it just looked amazing and magic. And it, and knowing that my dad drew and the Disney connection and all of that, like I really had an, a desire uh, to want to do that someday, you know, fast forward through childhood and getting into sports and music and other things that sort of, um, kind of led me to other pursuits. Uh, it wasn't until I got into college and started to try to concentrate on art. At first, I wanted to be a, an illustrator slash designer slash industrial designer, thinking it might be cool to um, design cars or you know stuff like that. But I changed gears one day. Like I was in the foundation course for art for, um, for industrial design, thinking that that was going to be cool. And, and the second year ahead of us were designing the cars and, and I thought, okay, that, that's great. And then when our second year started, our group project was to design a modern kitchen. And I thought, what, what, I, I don't want <laughs> it. What happened to the cars? Well, there's much more to industrial design than, uh, designing cars, you know, what? But that was, you know, and I, I, the next day I switched my major to kind of a general art. I sort of designed my own major just to sample some things. And, you know, I took an illustration class and a design graphics class and, you know, sort of ditched the whole industrial design because I was not interested in designing kitchen parts. Right. <clears throat> so fast forward, sorry for the, the lengthy description, but one of the electives I took was a independent design class where you could choose your own, your own medium. And you had to pitch to the, the teacher and to the class what your project would be. Some people use this to do printmaking or ceramics or oil painting or whatever they wanted to concentrate on for just that one kind of one man show pitch. And I decided, well, I want to do an animated cartoon. I want to do a super eight little, little story. <clears throat> so I pitched my idea. And this was just after uh, Sleeping Beauty had been re-released on the big screen. You know, Disney mm -hmm. back then would, like every seven years or whatever, would 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 bring out a a one of their classics, and that happened to be on the big screen. And I remember going to that, and I sat through it twice, going, "Oh my goodness, this is amazing! I want to do that." And, and so I was kind of back on fire for animation. Then it kind of relit that that passion. And so I had pitched my idea and my teacher, who was a wonderful old gentleman, old school, classic artist. I think he, he, he was from Greece, but 
you know, grew up in America. But so I had a classical art training. When he heard my pitch, he goes, what do you want to prostitute your art to sell sugar to children on Saturday morning for? I mean, animation, that's, that's like, you know, that's way beneath your talent. Mm. Yeah, but what about Sleeping Beauty and Fantasia? Yeah. You know, and I kind of countered saying, you know, these were fantastic classical trained artists who had, you know, achieved these wonderful heights of design and storytelling. And, and he kind of looked at me skeptically and says, okay, well, we'll see what you can do with it. Yeah, you can do your, your little cartoon. Go, go <laughs> and so I just got totally into it, just rolled up my sleeves and I was up till, you know, two and three in the morning. I was just really totally got into it and made this little, it's like maybe two minutes long, silent, Super 8. I got a little Super 8 camera and built myself a little stand and told my little story and got excited about it, you know, figuring out how to make it walk and, you know, all the little gags. And, and, uh, at the end of it, he's, he said, you know, this turned out pretty good. I, uh, <laughs> I can see you're really into it, but we don't teach that here. So, but here, and he had cut out an article from the Sunday supplement paper. There's the, the parade magazine, which used to come on the Sunday papers. It was just a short little couple paragraph article about John Lasseter who at the time was a student at California Institute of the Arts, and he had just won his second consecutive Academy Award for a student film that he had done at Cal Arts. And he said, if you're into animation, this is, this is where you got to go. And so that, that turned my head towards Cal Arts. I called at the school, got some information. My mom at the time still lived in Orange County, which was about, you know, close to an hour and a half away from, from Cal Arts. At the end of the term, I went to visit my mom on my way home to Hawaii, and uh, she uh, let me borrow her car. <laughs> I drove up to I drove up to Cal Arts, and I met the director of the program, who was Jack Hanna, and he had directed a bunch of Donald Duck shorts, and he was kind of a old veteran from Disney days. He showed me around his office. He showed me around the campus. He showed me what kind of portfolios I was up against. He goes, well, here's your competition. You got to be at least as good as this or better. And, you know, he showed me what they're looking for. And I worked hard and, and got my portfolio together and was accepted for the following year. I actually had to wait a year because, you know, I had to save money. And uh, but I got in the, the next year and that's it. That's my that's my journey into animation. And CalArts kind of helped pave the way to, you know, my to get my classical training, I guess, of, of the Disney style and, and aim towards a real career in animation. Yeah. So we have to dive right into some of these classic movies that you were a part of. Like, did you know that the movies that you were working on were going to be household names or movies that people are their favorite movie? Like, did you know at the time that you were working on movies that would really change the game in animation? Or is that something that you really didn't realize until you look back on your career? Well, I think a little of both. More, more at the time, I knew something was special happening. There was kind of a groundswell amongst my generation of, you know, guys that grew up watching this stuff and wanting to be a part of it somehow. I met the first batch of those at, in my Cal Arts days. And then as I started working at, at studios, first at, you know, first at Hanna-Barbera and then Apogee, and then I got in at Bluth, there was this, this kind of 
groundswell of young people who were excited about wanting to um, tap into that legacy, the, the classical animation legacy. And Don Bluth played a big part of that even before I started working there. Of course, they had done Secret of Nim, and Disney was sort of kind of on the decline in in those days, as it's well documented. You know, um, the older guys were were you know retiring and and passing on, and and there was a gap. And then, of course, Bluth at the time had his group, and there was a conflict, and they left, and so that that leaving sort of I, I think woke up the giant, so to speak, you know, Bluth went off and, and did Secret of Nim and started doing the video games. And then they got a deal with, with Spielberg. So that, that was kind of on the upswing. Meanwhile, the, the gap left at Disney with the youngsters coming from CalArts. Now we're giving opportunities, get, we're given opportunities to grow and stretch and, and become even better. And of course, you know, with the help of Roy Disney behind the scenes of saying, hey, you know, we, we want to keep the Disney legacy alive. And they did. So together, those factors played a big part in that kind of groundswell of young people wanting to be a part of that. So in part, answer to your question, yeah, it was, it was, I was aware that something special was happening, but it, it became surprising at how big they became. I mean, um, American Tale at the time said, its own box office records. And then shortly after that, Disney was setting box office records and, mm -hmm. and you know, the, the, that kind of launch that groundswell or wave, if you will, kind of started to grow. And, and now it was a ride. It was like, Whoa, how, how big can this get? Cause it's amazing how, how popular it started to become. When I look at the stuff you and I have created in my very short career as a content creator, I, I tend to feel like I, it's a surreal moment when we get announced in award shows or when we're mentioned in media and other places. And it's really surreal. It's like almost like, do I really belong here? Is there a moment in your career where you are like, is this real life? Like, how how is this happening to me? Uh, has there been a moment like that for you? Oh yeah. Lots of those. I, I think, um, the moments that I think of when you ask that is, are when I, um, would attend a premiere from one of our films. Usually it's like the, the crew parties, I guess you could call them the rap parties where, where they would rent, they would rent a theater and, you know, everybody and their dates and, you know, the whole production would go and it, it might be at the El Capitan theater, or it might be at the, you know, some other big Hollywood venue. And it was, it wasn't, you know, necessarily red carpet and, and all that fancy, but it felt like it to us, you know, it was like, wow, this is, we did this, you know, we get dressed up and, and you see your name on the screen and you're cheering for each other when the names come up, you know, it, it was very, very exciting and thrilling. And I, I remember the well, Lion King in particular with that mm -hmm. opening, you know, where, where the sunset uh, comes up or the sunrise comes up and it's like. Boom, and the music and the full and, and you, you did get chills. It's like, well, this is <laughs> really big. And I helped make that, you know, you, you did feel a sense of pride and collectively everybody sitting in the room in the dark, you know, shoulder to shoulder going, man, we, we can be proud of this one. You know, mm. those kind of moments. Uh, yeah. I, I remember those. So speaking of working together, it, it's interesting that I, I think most people, the average Joe might not understand that 
when animators work together, they're work sometimes they're working on specific scenes, sometimes they're working on specific characters. How do you have a cohesive look in a cartoon like Lion King or a cartoon like uh, American Tale? How do you have cohesive characters along different artists throughout an entire picture? How does it all look like it fits into the same world? A lot of planning goes into that where you rely on the you know, the directors and the designers. And then uh, when it comes to animation, your, your lead animators who are sort of the gatekeepers of how the, the, that particular character moves and, and get the final look. Um, and, and keeping it consistent between the artists so that, um, it, you aspire to try to make it look like the same hand drew the character. So there's not a lot of diversion. Now it's, it's almost impossible to do that a hundred percent. It's just, just like handwriting. Everybody has right. unique handwriting and, you know, everybody has a, a unique voice print. Everybody has a unique style. So. You can tell, okay, here's an Aladdin that um, that Glenn Keane drew, or here's an Aladdin that Tony DeRosa drew, or here's an Aladdin that I drew. You know, there's maybe the slightest little variation, but it's just kind of built in. But you're still aspiring to get to that 100% uniformity so that, that it doesn't show as much, you know, to, to the audience. So you want, try to keep it consistent, of course, you know, through the use of model sheets, which you know, everybody has taped to their walls and, uh, you know, pinned to their desks. And you're always referring to what the, what the character should look like to keep it consistent. And of course you have a great, uh, support team of assistant animators who are doing the in-betweens and the cleanup keys and the cleanup, you know, breakdowns and, and in-betweens. And so there's that goal, of course, to keep it as consistent as possible to interpret the different um, roughs that all the different artists might have and then kind of bring it down to a, a as close to a consistent style as possible <clears throat> and um, that's that's the goal and it's it's an army of people you look at those those credits and they just go on and on there's dozens and dozens and you know even hundreds of, of artists and technicians that have their 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 step it's a true studio experience where you know, everybody has a part to play and, you know, they do their, their thing and hopefully it comes out on the screen. <laughs> it definitely does, especially with some of those super classic movies. When you think about going through the process of creating a character and bringing that character to life, is there a process that you follow? Uh, do you take inspiration from other things in order to go into your art? Uh, what's some of the, the secret sauce that goes into what you create? First of all, I would say it's, it's try to get inside the character that, uh, meaning try to think about what, what's the character thinking and feeling at this particular moment. Of course, you have the script and you have the storyboards and, and you have the continuity you could look at and you can go, okay, well, he's, he's here at the beginning of my shot and then he's got to get here by the end of the shot. And there's some te technical things, always got to take X number of steps to get there. And, you know, there's, there's some nuts and bolts you got to figure out, but yet the core of it is why is he doing that? What's he feeling? Is he being chased? Is he chasing someone? Is he just stopping and thinking? Is he waiting for something to happen? And then something happens and he reacts, you know, there's, there's a variety of things that, that you have to think about and then kind of imagine 
how to get that across. What we used to do in the olden days, <laughs> we used to get what they called the radio track, which harkens back to, you know, an old, the old Disney thing where we go to the editorial and we'd get the, um, we'd get a cassette tape of our little section of the film that we're working on. And then we would just play that little segment over and over again. And we'd listen to the, the dialogue track, just the same way you would listen to an old time radio show. On right. all you were hearing were the voices or maybe a few sound effects, maybe a few musical cues. And you could just listen. And in your own mind's imagination, you, you, would, you would picture what's going on. You would picture the expression. You would picture the, the action. And just kind of imagine it over and over again. How would, how would they say this? How would they move? How would they turn? And then, then you would get up and maybe act it out and, you know, maybe even shoot some video of yourself you know, just to kind of get a feel for, um, what's going on. And then you can refer to it, not to trace it slavishly and say, okay, well, the elbow has to go here or whatever, but just observe say, oh, look, when I, when I start my run. I lean this way and then I twist my shoulder and I tilt my head or whatever. I mean, there's little subtle things that maybe you wouldn't have thought of unless you'd observed it. Another thing too, if you're dealing with, you know, four-legged animals, you might, you know, get, try to get reference, get a, back before the internet, you know, we would get reference from, you know, videotapes, like get an, an old nature program or something um, and, and look at, you know, an elephant walking or, you know, a lion running or, or whatever you, you would try to find reference. So you could observe and go, Oh, that's interesting. When they lift their foot, they do this. Oh, wow. Look at that tail. I would have thought it would be, would have been more reverie, but look, it's kind of steady. Right. You, know, you, you discover things just by observation so that when you do draw it, people will accept it because even though they may not have studied it the way you did, at least they accept it because they might've seen something similar and it just feels true. They go, yeah, that, that feels right because mm. it, it looks right. If it sticks out and it looks weird, then they go, oh, no, that, that's just a stupid drawing. But if it feels believable, they'll think, oh, what's, what's going to happen here? They get into it and they're more into that foundation of what's going on rather than paying attention to, you know, the fact that it might be a drawing. Right. When we think about some of that stuff, the, the way that you are inspired to, to do something, it, it ultimately you want to invoke a feeling, whether you want someone to laugh or you want someone to feel happy or even to feel a little sad in some cases. I'm sure when you saw the impact of the scene in The Lion King with young Simba, I'm sure that that impact that you saw people have for that scene was probably spellbinding in some ways. What goes into some of those, those scenes where obviously there's the music that probably plays a large part in the editing, but then ultimately it's a part of the animation that really elicits that emotional response was the response of that part of the Lion King surprising to you? Were there other scenes that really evoked emotional response that you were surprised at how impactful they were for folks? Oh, all of what you said is true. I mean, it's, it's a combination of the thing of, you know, the music, the moment, the, the design, but from the animator's standpoint, um, I, I kind of go back to what I came to call the secret of animation. I mean, it's, I guess it's no secret, but what, what I tried to do in my shots would be to make the character seem alive because animation, of course, the definition is 
putting life into something or the illusion of life or the infusion of life. So if you can make the audience believe that your character is alive, well, how do you do that? So to me, the, the secret is convincing the audience that somehow the, the character you're drawing can do things that only a living thing can do. So what can living things do? They, they breathe, they see, they hear, they taste, they, they smell, they, they can think they have living, living energies, I guess you could say of, of being able to see and feel and experience their world. So if we can convince the audience that these drawings are experiencing their world through sights and, and touch and sound and taste and, and using their senses, then the audience can believe that those things are happening to them and the audience can identify with it because they might have felt something similar or, or, or whatever. So, so to me, if I can do a drawing of, of Simba or Aladdin or, you know, any the number of characters I've had the opportunity to draw, if I can show that they're seeing something and then reacting to what they're seeing or show that they're tasting something and then reacting to what they're tasting or showing that they're hearing something and reacting to what they're hearing. It sounds kind of fundamental and basic, but yet to me, that is the basics, right? That if, if they're not, if they're not living in the eye of the, of the audience, then the audience just tunes out. They don't care. Right. But if they connect and go, Oh, he saw that. And now he has a feeling about it. What's he going to do? You know, then they're into it. They want to turn the page and see what, what's, what the next thing is. And, and it, it grabs them because they believe that the character believes what's happening to them. And I, to me, that's the secret is keeping them alive so that the, what, whatever does happen to them, the audience buy the audience buys it and goes, oh yeah, they, they, uh, they're in it. They're in the moment and you carry the audience along with them. That is absolutely incredible. And you, I didn't even think of it. You're right. You know, if you see something and it's breathing and it's experiencing, all of a sudden it really does come to life, even if it's an animation. What, you, looking at your storied career, right? 40 years plus of, of animation and seeing things brought to life. What has been the thing you're most proud of, uh, whether it's something that you created or a feeling that you've elicited or just the people that you've worked with? What, what is the most proud moment of your entire career? Wow. That's a great question, Chris. I'm not sure I can pick a particular one moment other than kind of a, maybe stringing together similar moments where I was fortunate enough to work alongside of some really great artists, you know, people that we rolled up our sleeves with, and I was inspired by them. People like Glenn Keane and Don Bluth and Eric Goldberg, Mark Henn. I mean, some of these great animators, um, so many, I, it's hard to mention because there's, there's, and wanting to measure up saying, oh, I'm, I'm in this group. These guys are great. I really got to try hard to, you know, <laughs> keep up, you right. know, and, and stretch my, stretch my talents and draw better and, and animate better. And, you know, just being inspired by these, these great other artists, knowing that they're going to see it and I don't want my stuff to suck next to theirs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So the, the inspired, the inspired artists I was able to work with 
and and having those moments where I would show a shot to one of them, because I, I worked for Glenn in the Aladdin unit. You know, I did my own small characters, which I got credit for in Aladdin. But when those characters were done, I was doing Aladdin under Glenn. <clears throat> and um, there were moments where I thought, well, here's the great Glenn Keane. I mean, he did the Beast and he did Ariel. I mean, he's like the best animator in, in the studio. Right. And, you know, I was, you know, in awe of him. And I showed one of my early shots to him. And it was Aladdin in front of the cave as he's been brought to the cave of wonders. And he goes, it is I, Aladdin. And, and it's just a simple shot. And I had showed a, a couple drawings to him just as a start, see if I'm on the right path. And he goes, okay, so what's happening here? Who, what's he feeling? He goes, well, you know, he's, he's hesitant. He says, oh, act it out. And so I acted it out and he goes, there, what you did right there. You kind of turn your shoulder defensively as if like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. It was right. just a, a subtle move. And he pointed it out. It says, you didn't draw that, but you felt it. You just showed me. Now do that. And, you know, I, I went away from that thinking, wow, you know, it's in me. I'm not, I'm not coming to him and saying, hey, you show me what to do, which is, which is kind of what I started because I was so in awe of his talent. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just try something and then he'll show me if I'm on the right track. And he was like, yeah, okay, so now let's talk about it. Act it out. And I acted it out and he goes, boom, that's it. You do that and you'll have it. And, and it, I went away feeling not deflated. I mean, someone could have gone and said, oh shoot, he didn't like what I did. No, it right. was like, wow, that inspired me to know that what I had inside was worth it. That, and that all I had to do was chase it and go, okay, I, I acted it out. I felt it. it it's in in my instinct, but now how do I translate that to, to make it read so that he'll go, yeah, you've got it. That I'll forever be grateful to him for that because, you know, again, walking into that meeting, feeling intimidated and walking out, feeling elevated, like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm with him, you know, I'm, I'm not as good as him, but yet I'm still, I can elevate myself based on his, his, uh, inspiration. And, and, you know, that was a great lesson and it, I carry that with me, you know, throughout my career. And I'm sure you've done the same for many other animators that have come up uh, behind you. And is there any words of wisdom or inspiration that you could give to today's generation of, of folks that are just now getting into animation? They're doing things with 3D now. Is there any piece of wisdom or comfort that you could give those folks out there today? Wow. Um, one thing about today is that there's so many things going on. I mean, back when I started, there weren't that many studios. There weren't that many channels. There wasn't that much product being made. Today, you've got, you know, how many dozens and even hundreds of channels. And you've got so many studios all throughout the world. They're not just concentrated in, you know, L.A. or New York or London. I mean, they're all over the world. And so the opportunities young people have today are, are just expanded to the point where, you know, having the opportunity to do animation is, is, is everywhere. And so, you know, I would say anybody that's into it and wants to pursue it, that first they should draw all the time. Even if they're going to do computer art, uh, I think the foundation for all of that is still good old fashioned drawing where you, you go to the zoo, you draw your own hands, you draw your 
cat, you draw your dog, you, you know, you go to a sporting event, you draw and sketch the action, you know, you sit sitting around watching TV, you, you sketch the people on the screen. This, this insatiable appetite to draw really should be the foundation and, and, uh, try to observe life the way it is and get a feeling for the study of life and how, how people sit, how people stand, how people walk, how people emote. And, and those, those things become the language and the foundation for when you start to tell your stories, whether you're going to be a designer or an animator or, you know, uh, an illustrator or whatever, um, you, you, your vocabulary of art now is rooted in true observation that uh, people can connect to when they see it. They go, wow, I, I feel that because I've seen something like that. So, I mean, that's the, that's the first, um, that's the first foundation is draw, 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 draw. And then secondly, um, as far as animation goes, find out what you like and what you want to be a part of, you know, it's, if you, if you're into the classical vein or you into video games or find out who's making the kind of stuff you like, you know, like, ah, I want to be a part of that. That looks cool. Find out, go to their websites and, and see, well, what kind of people do they hire? I mean, wh who, what are they looking for? What kind of portfolios do they, you know, um, look for, um, you know, just, just kind of study it out to, to see if that's where you want to go. Um, find out how to get there. Uh, and, um, you know, that's, that's, I, I think the second part of it is, is aim for what you want and then also be flexible. You might decide, Hey, I want to be an animator. And then you get into it. Hey, you know what? I, I like storyboarding instead. Right. Or you might want to do storyboards. You go, Hey, you know what? I like backgrounds instead. You know, you, you, you be flexible and, and, and figure out, be open to new possibilities as you get exposed to them. Perfect, perfect advice for anyone out there that's looking to become a creator or is already a creator and you need to get back on track. T-Dan, first of all, I just want to say thank you for everything that you've been a part of, bringing joy to millions of people around the world. So thank you for that. But then also thank you for taking the time to hop on the mics with me today. Uh, for folks that want to stay up to date with you and what you have going on in your life, uh, what are the best ways that people can do that? Well, I do a little bit of music on the side, which is, you know, I, I, I can't say it's ever gone viral. It's more going spiral, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I do some acoustic music. That's my own. They can find me on, uh, on my YouTube channel, which is T Danimate, T D A N I M eight T Danimate. Um, and that, that has a few clips of some of my, um, some of my animation, I have some clips stored there, uh, some stuff I did for Disney and one of my reels is there, which is a little outdated now, but you know, I should probably update it one, one of these years, <laughs> but music is sort of my own personal art. You know, when I'm not doing, uh, studio work, which you know takes a lot of time and that's more collaborative. When I do my own art, I'm, I'm writing songs and performing and, and so that's what I do on the side. Fantastic. And I'll be sure to drop that into the show notes below. T-Dan, thanks again. And we'll see everyone next time. Thank you, Chris.